Letter three of Clarissa Harlowe, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Clarissa Harlowe, volume four by Samuel Richardson. Letter three. Miss Clarissa Harlowe to Miss Howe, Thursday morning, eight o'clock. I am more and more displeased with Mr. Lovelace on reflection for his boldness in hoping to make me, though but passively, as I may say, testify to his great untruth. And I shall like him still less for it, if his view in it does not come out to be the hope of accelerating my resolution in his favour, by the difficulty it will lay me under as to my behaviour to him. He has sent me his compliments by Dorcas, with a request that I will permit him to attend me in the dining-room. Meet him in good humour, or not. But I have answered that, as I shall see him at breakfast-time, I desire to be excused. Ten o'clock. I tried to adjust my countenance before I went down, to an easier air than I had a heart, and was received with the highest tokens of respect by the widow and her two nieces, agreeable young women enough in their persons, but they seemed to put on an air of reserve, while Mr. Lovelace was easy and free to all, as if he were of long acquaintance with them. Gracefully enough, I cannot but say, an advantage which travelled gentlemen have over other people. The widow, in the conversation we had after breakfast, gave us an account of the military merit of the colonel, her husband, and upon this occasion put her handkerchief to her eyes twice or thrice. I hope for the sake of her sincerity she wetted it, because she would be thought to have done so. But I saw not that she did. She wished that I might never know the loss of a husband so dear to me, as her beloved colonel was to her, and she again put the handkerchief to her eyes. It must no doubt be a most affecting thing to be separated from a good husband, and to be left in difficult circumstances besides, and that not by his fault, and exposed to the insults of the base and ungrateful, as she represented her case to be at his death. This moved me a good deal in her favour. You know, my dear, that I have an open and free heart, and naturally have as open and free a countenance. At least my complimenters have told me so. At once, where I like, I mingle minds without reserve, encouraging reciprocal freedoms, and am forward to dissipate diffidences. But with these two nieces of the widow I never can be intimate— I don't know why. Only that circumstances, and what passed in conversation, encouraged not the notion. I should have been apt to think that the young ladies and Mr. Lovelace were of longer acquaintance than of yesterday. For he, by stealth as it were, cast glances sometimes at them when they returned. And on my ocular notice their eyes fell, as I may say, under my eye, as if they could not stand its examination. The widow directed all her talk to me, as to Mrs. Lovelace, and I, with a very ill grace, bore it and once she expressed more forwardly than I thanked her for, her wonder that any vow, any consideration, however weighty, could have force enough with so charming a couple, as she called him and me, to make us keep separate beds. Their eyes upon this hint had the advantage of mine, yet was I not conscious of guilt. How know I, then, upon recollection, that my censures upon theirs are not too rash? There are, no doubt, many truly modest persons, putting myself out of the question, who, by blushes at an injurious charge, have been suspected, by those who cannot distinguish between the confusion which guilt will be attended with, and the noble consciousness that overspreads the face of a fine spirit, to be thought but capable of an imputed evil. The great Raymond, as we read, who took his surname from one part in three, the fourth not then discovered, of the world he had triumphed over, being charged with a great crime to his soldiery, chose rather to suffer exile, the punishment due to it had he been found guilty, than to have it said that Scipio was questioned in public on so scandalous a charge. And think you, my dear, that Scipio did not blush with indignation, 
when the charge was first communicated to him. Mr. Lovelace, when the widow expressed her forward wonder, looked sly and leering, as if to observe how I took it, and said they might take notice that his regard for my will and pleasure, calling me his dear creature, had greater force upon him than the oath by which he had bound himself. Rebuking both him and the widow, I said it was strange to me to hear an oath or vow so lightly treated, as to have it thought but of second consideration, whatever were the first. The observation was just, Miss Martin said, for that nothing could excuse the breaking of a solemn vow, be the occasion of making it what it would. I asked her after the nearest church, for I have been too long a stranger to the sacred worship. They named St. James's, St. Anne's, and another in Bloomsbury, and the two nieces said they oftenest went to St. James's church, because of the good company, as well as for the excellent preaching. Mr. Lovelace said the royal chapel was the place he oftenest went to when he was in town. Poor man! Little did I expect to hear he went to any place of devotion. I asked if the presence of the visible king of, comparatively, but a small territory, did not take off too generally the requisite attention to the service of the invisible king and maker of a thousand worlds. He believed this might be so with such as came for curiosity when the royal family were present, but otherwise he had seen as many contrite faces at the royal chapel as anywhere else, and why not, since the people about court have as deep scores to wipe off as any people whatsoever. He spoke this with so much levity that I could not help saying, that nobody questioned but he knew how to choose his company. Your servant, my dear, bowing, were his words. And turning to them, you will observe upon numberless occasions, ladies, as we are further acquainted, that my beloved never spares me upon these topics. But I admire her as much in her reproofs as I am fond of her approbation. Miss Horton said there was a time for everything. She could not but say that she thought innocent mirth was mighty becoming in young people. Very true, joined in Miss Martin, and Shakespeare says well, that youth is the spring of life, the bloom of gaudy years. With a theatrical air she spoke it, and for her part she could not but admire in my spouse that charming vivacity which so well suited his time of life. Mr. Lovelace bowed. The man is fond of praise. More fond of it, I doubt, than of deserving it. Yet this sort of praise he does deserve. He has, you know, an easy, free manner, and no bad voice, and this praise so expanded his gay heart that he sung the following lines from Congreve, as he told us they were, Youth does a thousand pleasures bring, which from decrepit age will fly. Sweets that wanton in the bosom of the spring, in winter's cold embraces die. And this for a compliment, as he said, to the two nieces. Nor was it thrown away upon them. They encored it, and his compliance fixed them in my memory. We had some talk about meals, and the widow very civilly offered to conform to any rules I would set her. I told her how easily I was pleased, and how much I chose to dine by myself, and that from a plate sent me from any single dish. "'But I will not trouble you, my dear, with such particulars. "'They thought me very singular, and with reason. "'But as I like them not so very well "'as to forego my own choice and compliment to them, "'I was the less concerned for what they thought, "'and still the less, as Mr. Lovelace "'had put me very much out of humour with him. "'They, however, cautioned me against melancholy. "'I said I should be a very unhappy creature "'if I could not bear my own company. "'Mr. Lovelace said that he must let the ladies into my story, "'and then they would know how to allow for my ways.' "'But, my dear, as you love me,' said the confident wretch, "'give as little way to melancholy as possible. "'Nothing but the sweetness of your temper. "'And your high notions of a duty "'that never can be deserved where you place it "'can make you so uneasy as you are. "'Be not angry, my dear love, for saying so, "'seeing me frown, I suppose, "'and snatched my hand and kissed it. "'I left him with them, "'and retired to my closet and my pen. "'Just as I have written thus far, "'I am interrupted by a message from him, that he is setting out on a journey, and desires to take my commands. So here I will leave off, to give him a meeting in the dining-room.
I was not displeased to see him in his riding-dress. He seemed desirous to know how I liked the gentlewomen below. I told him that although I did not think them very exceptionable, yet as I wanted not in my present situation new acquaintance, I should not be fond of cultivating theirs. He urged me still further on this head. I could not say, I told him, that I greatly liked either of the young gentlewomen, any more than their aunt, and that, were my situation ever so happy, they had much too gay a turn for me. He did not wonder, he said, to hear me say so. He knew not any of the sex, who had been accustomed to show themselves at the town diversions and amusements that would appear tolerable to me. Silences and blushes, madam, are now no graces with our fine ladies in town. Hardened by frequent public appearances, they would be as much ashamed to be found guilty of these weaknesses as men. Do you defend these two gentlewomen, sir, by reflections upon half the sex? But you must second me, Mr. Lovelace, and yet I am not fond of being thought particular, in my desire of breakfasting and supping when I do sup, by myself. If I would have it so, to be sure it should be so. The people of the house were not of consequence enough to be apologised to, in any point where my pleasure was concerned, and if I should dislike them still more on further knowledge of them, he hoped I would think of some other lodgings. He expressed a good deal of regret at leaving me, declaring that it was absolutely in obedience to my commands, but that he could not have consented to go while my brother's schemes were on foot, if I had not done him the credit of my countenance in the report he had made that we were married, which, he said, had bound all the family to his interest, so that he could leave me with the greater security and satisfaction. He hoped, he said, that on his return I would name his happy day, and the rather as I might be convinced by my brother's projects that no reconciliation was to be expected. I told him that perhaps I might write one letter to my uncle Harlowe. He once loved me. I should be easier when I had made one direct application. I might possibly propose such terms in relation to my grandfather's estate, as might procure me their attention, and I hoped he would be long enough absent to give me time to write to him and receive an answer from him. That, he must beg my pardon, he could not promise. He would inform himself of Singleton's and my brother's motions, and if on his return he found no reason for apprehension, he would go directly for Barks, and endeavour to bring up with him his cousin Charlotte, who, he hoped, would induce me to give him an earlier day than at present I seem to think of. I seem to think of, my dear, very acquiescent, as I should imagine. I told him that I should take that young lady's company for a great favour. I was the more pleased with his motion, as it came from himself, and with no ill grace. He earnestly pressed me to accept of a bank-note, but I declined it and then he offered me his servant William for my attendant in his absence, who, he said, might be dispatched to him, if anything extraordinary fell out. I consented to that. He took his leave of me in the most respectful manner, only kissing my hand. He left the bank-note, unobserved by me, upon the table. You may be sure I shall give it him back at his return. I am in a much better humour with him than I was. Where doubts of any person are removed, a mind not ungenerous is willing, by way of amends for having conceived those doubts, to construe everything that happens, capable of a good instruction, in that person's favour. Particularly, I cannot but be pleased to observe that although he speaks of the ladies of his family with the freedom of relationship, yet it is always of tenderness, and from a man's kindness to his relations of the sex, a woman has some reason to expect his good behaviour to herself when married, if she be willing to deserve it from him. And thus, my dear, am I brought to sit down satisfied with this man, where I find room to infer that he is not by nature a savage. But how could a creature who, treating herself unpolitely, gave a man an opportunity to run away with her, expect to be treated by that man with a very high degree of politeness? But why now, when fairer prospects seem to open, why these melancholy reflections? 
will my beloved friend ask of her Clarissa? Why? Can you ask why, my dearest Miss Howe, of a creature who, in the world's eye, had enrolled her name among the giddy and inconsiderate, who labours under a parent's curse, and the cruel uncertainties which must arise from reflecting that equally against duty and principle, she has thrown herself into the power of a man, and that man an immoral one, must not the sense she has of her inconsideration darken her most hopeful prospects? Must it not even rise strongest upon a thoughtful mind? When her hopes are the fairest, even her pleasures, were the man to prove better than she expects, coming to her with an abatement, like that which persons who are in possession of ill-gotten wealth must then most poignantly experience, if they have reflecting and unseared minds, when all their wishes answered, if answered, they sit down in hopes to enjoy what they have unjustly obtained, and find their own reflections their greatest torment. May you, my dear friend, be always happy in your reflections, praise, your ever-affectionate, Clarissa Harlowe. Mr. Lovelace, in his next letter, triumphs on his having carried his two great points, of making the lady yield to pass for his wife to the people of the house, and to his taking up his lodging in it, though but for one night. He is now, he says, in a fair way, and doubts not but that he shall soon prevail, if not by persuasion, by surprise. Yet he pretends to have some little remorse, and censures himself as to acting the part of the grand tempter. But having succeeded thus far, he cannot, he says, forbear trying, according to the resolution he had before made, whether he cannot go further. He gives the particulars of their debates on the above-mentioned subjects, to the same effect as in the lady's last letters. It will by this time be seen that his whole merit, with regard to the lady, lies in doing justice to her excellencies both of mind and person, though to his own condemnation. Thus he begins his succeeding letter. And now, Belford, will I give thee an account of our first breakfast conversation. All sweetly serene and easy was the lovely brow and charming aspect of my goddess, on her descending among us, commanding reverence from every eye, a courtesy from every knee, and silence, awful silence, from every quivering lip, while she, armed with conscious worthiness and superiority, looked and behaved as an empress would look and behave among her vassals, yet with a freedom from pride and haughtiness, as if born to dignity, and to a behaviour habitually gracious. He takes notice of the jealousy, pride, and vanity of Sally Martin and Polly Horton, on his respectful behaviour to the lady, creatures who, brought up too high for their fortunes, and to a taste of pleasure, and the public diversions, had fallen an easy prey to his seducing arts, as will be seen in the conclusion of this work, and who, as he observed, had not yet got over that distinction in their love which makes a woman prefer one man to another. How difficult is it, says he, to make a woman subscribe to a preference against herself, though ever so visible, especially where love is concerned. This violent, this partial little devil Sally has the insolence to compare herself with my angel, yet owns her to be an angel. I charge you, Mr. Lovelace, says she, show none of your extravagant acts of kindness before me to this sullen, this gloomy beauty. I cannot bear it. Then was I reminded of her first sacrifice. What a rout do these women make about nothing at all, were it not for what the learned bishop, in his letter from Italy, calls the entanglements of amour, and I the delicacies of intrigue? What is there, Belford, in all they can do for us? How do these creatures endeavour to stimulate me? A fallen woman is a worse devil than ever a profligate man. The former is incapable of remorse. That am not I, nor ever shall they prevail upon me, though aided by all the powers of darkness, to treat this admirable creature with indignity so far, I mean, as indignity can be separated from the trials which will prove her to be either woman or angel. Yet with them I am a craven. 
I might have had her before now, if I would. If I would treat her as flesh and blood, I should find her such. They thought I knew, if any man living did, that if a man made a goddess of a woman, she would assume the goddess. That if power were given to her, she would exert that power to the giver, if to nobody else. And Dee's wife is thrown into my dish, who, thou knowest, kept her ceremonious husband at haughty distance, and whined in private, to her insulting footman. Oh, how I curse the blasphemous wretches! They will make me, as I tell them, hate their house, and remove from it. And by my soul, Jack, I am ready at times to think that I should not have brought her hither, were it but on Sally's account. And yet, without knowing either Sally's heart or Polly's, the dear creature resolves against having any conversation with them but such as she can avoid. I am not sorry for this, thou mayest think, since jealousy in a woman is not to be concealed from woman, and Sally has no command of herself. What dost think? Here this little devil Sally, not being able, as she told me, to support life under my displeasure, was going into a fit, but when I saw her preparing for it I went out of the room, and so she thought it would not be worth her while to show away. In this manner he mentions what his meaning was in making the lady the compliment of his absence. As to leaving her, if I go but for one night I have fulfilled my promise, and if she think not I can mutter and grumble and yield again and make a merit of it, and then, unable to live out of her presence, soon return. Nor are women ever angry at bottom for being disobeyed through excess of love. They like an uncontrollable passion. They like to have every favour ravished from them, and to be eaten and drunk quite up by a voracious lover. Don't I know the sex? Not so indeed as yet my Clarissa. But, however, with her, my frequent egresses will make me look new to her, and create little busy scenes between us. At the least, I may say surely, without exception, salute her at parting and at return. And will not those occasional freedoms, which civility will warrant, by degrees familiarise my charmer to them? But here, Jack, what shall I do with my uncle and aunts and all my loving cousins? For I understand that they are more in haste to have me married than I am myself. End of letter three.